Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. We are in the middle of a series um, that we've entitled Church with a View. And it's all based on God's vision and God's desire for His church. His vision and His mission for His church. Um, Because He wants us, He wants us to view our lives as individuals. He wants us to view our corporate life as a church body with a vision. He wants us to view our lives differently, to see it with purpose. And as a church, that is vitally important. As an individual, that is vitally important. Because you can go day to day to day to day just going about your own business and you are missing the point. God has a vision. He has a view and a purpose for your life that he wants you to fulfill. It's what Jesus came to do. It's what he spent three years of ministry mentoring and instructing and teaching his followers so that he could turn it over to them so that they would be co-missioners with him. This is what it's all about, folks. And it all goes back to to the final words that he gave to them. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said this to his followers. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. That's your life. That's what you're called to do. That's what I'm called to do, to be a witness. It's as simple as that. It's not to have two cars in my garage. Two chickens in my pot. No, it's not for any of us. My life is a witness. Your life is a witness. That's what he says here. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Starting in Jerusalem, that's the people closest to you. And then in Judea, which is the outer fringes of your relationships, those circle of friends that are kind of on the outside that you kind of know and you relate to, but you don't know real well. And then, then he really pushes the envelope because then he says, not only Jerusalem and Judea, but Samaria. Now, I am sure, I am absolutely sure that when his disciples heard him say Samaria, every one of them flashed back to an incident that happened earlier in Jesus' ministry. I believe that because it is the only recorded incidence we have in all of the Gospels that Jesus went to Samaria. So when Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, right here where you live, in Judea, in the surrounding areas around you, and even in Samaria, every one of them is thinking back to, I remember that time. And the incident is recorded in John chapter 4. And I'd like to have you read this with me. If you would, open your Bibles and and pull it out. Uh, John chapter 4, we're going to begin reading um, in verse 3. And it's kind of a long, you know, long passage here, so you know, hang with me. Um, just follow along. It says, he left Judea and went once more to Galilee. Now that's, okay, those are two different parts of the country. Judea's down in the south. Galilee's more up in the north. But in between them is Samaria. And so it says, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman looked at him and said, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did all his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't have to get thirsty and won't have to keep coming back here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is a spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And that's kind of an odd conversation. And I'm sure, I'm sure the conversation was a lot longer than, than what we've got here. I think this is just kind of the highlights. There's a lot of stuff that went on because it seems really abrupt and it just kind of moved from subject to subject. But Jesus is doing something here. You see, he came with a sense of mission. He came to teach people about the Father. He came to teach people about the kingdom of God. He came to point people in that direction and help them find what it is God wanted for their lives. And so when he is conversing with this woman at this well, he's trying to get her to see life is more than what you keep filling it with. There's a greater thirst in you that you don't even realize And that is the message that he gave to his followers for us to contribute and for us to continue to tell people about. And I think the best way to do that is to learn from the master. How did Jesus do it? How did Jesus talk to the people that he didn't really know? How did he get to those who really didn't connect with him? Because Samaritans didn't connect with Jews. How did he do that? How could we possibly do that? And I think there's a couple of things here as you read through this. One of the things as you read through all of Jesus' ministry, it's the same thing keeps coming across over and over again. Jesus went out of his way. He went out of his way to meet people where they were. Now, you read through the Gospels, and you find crowds followed Jesus wherever he went. You know, it didn't take much for Jesus to draw a crowd. He just kind of showed up, and people flocked to him. But he wasn't content to just stay where he was and wait for people to come. He also went out of his way. He went places where people were. He went to meet them on their own turf. It says that John tells us that when he was going from Judea to Galilee, he had to go through Samaria. Now, that just simply is not true. Geographically, that is not true. Yes, 
Judea's in the south, Galilee's in the north, and, and Samaria's kind of in between. But most Jews did not go through Samaria. In fact, they would go out of their way to avoid Samaria. People did not travel through, through Samaria because it was the, the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans was huge. Just absolutely huge. I mean, they were, it would be like the Jews and Palestinians today. It was, it was absolutely huge. First of all, the way that the Samaritans ended up, the Samaritans were when the Assyrians in 722 BC came in and, and overtook the northern kingdom because Samaria used to be a part of Israel. And when they came in and took over, one of the things that they did was they, they killed the brightest and best and they took others and brought them back as slaves to Assyria. And then what they did is they started moving their own people in so that this would really be a territory of theirs. And what happened over the years is people started intermarrying. There were no true Jews left in Samaria. They were considered by the Jews to be half-breeds. Worse than that. Worse than that was, remember the Maccabean revolt? You've heard about that in history? When the Maccabeans led Israel in a revolt, the, the Samaritans sided with the Syrians. They sided on the wrong side. They actually became their enemies. And then when it came time to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem... And, and, and the Samaritans thought, well, let's you know, we'll get back in their good graces. The Samaritans actually offered to come and help rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews said, no, we don't want anything to do with you guys. We don't need your help. We don't want your help. That's one of the reasons why they're, they're worshiping now on Mount Gerizim. See, all of this stuff has happened. They have all kinds of things that have gone on in their history. And they are just so at each other. They don't want anything to do with each other. And, and by the way, because of all of that, the Samaritans had some really weird theology. They, they believed in God, Yahweh, but they believed in all the other gods too. It was just kind of like, you know, whatever God you wanted, that was cool. And so, in every respect, politically, ethnically, geographically, uh, culturally, um, theologically, they were complete opposites. They had nothing to do with each other. Yet John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. That's a really important point. Because Jesus is not traveling the usual roads. He is going out of his way to meet somebody that nobody else would give a time of day to. To a whole people, to a whole village that nobody else would give any time to at all. Though they had a common ancestry, there was a bitter animosity between these two people. And Jesus went there. In fact, it says he had to go there. He was so compelled by the love of the Father. He was so compelled by the work of the Spirit. He was so compelled by the Father's love within him. He had to go to Samaria. And he went there. And he stops, we're told, at a well. And it's about high noon. And as he's sitting at the well, he sends his disciples into town to go and get some food, which is not going to be an easy task as it is. So he's sitting there at the well all by himself, and out comes a woman. Now, we're told by John, if you go on, that it was about noon when the Samaritan woman came out to draw water. And Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, there's a couple of really important points there, too. It's about noon. See, noon is not when you go draw water. The well is kind of the gathering place. That's where people hung out, you know? That's where people came. And usually it was early in the morning, 
you know, in the cool of the morning before it started to heat up or in the cool of the evening for the next day. But you didn't go draw water at the highest, hottest part of the day. And, and, and when you went to the well, you kind of went, women were mostly the ones who did that, and, and they would go in groups for safety's sake. But here's a woman coming at noon all by herself. Now that tells us a couple things about this lady. She's not part of a clique. She doesn't have any friends going with her to the well. She's not doing it at the time of day when everybody else is going to the well. And we find out a little bit later in the story, there's a lot going on in this lady's life. Because see, at the well, that's where you hang out. Because everybody takes a turn drawing the water. And you go in a group. So as you're standing around drawing water and waiting your turn, that's where the news is shared. That's where people talk about what's going on in the village. And it's kind of a small town. So that's where all the gossip hangs out. Kind of like Benicia sometimes. (laughs) Everybody in town knows everybody else's business, it seems. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. But she's not a part of any of those groups. She's not coming in the morning. She's not hanging out in the evening. She's coming when she knows nobody else is going to be there. Because this woman has a past. And everybody in the town knows her business. And it's just easier to just not be around them. Avoid the embarrassment. Because when you walk up and you hear everybody go, oh, here she comes. Man, you, you don't need that. It's just, you know, I'll just go when I know nobody else. Is, but here's a Jew sitting there. And not only that, he's asking for a drink of water. That is like unheard of. But Jesus has gone out of his way to talk to this woman. Now, I just want to ask you a question this morning. Answer this one for yourself. Who were the Samaritans in your life? Who were the people in your life that you avoid? That you kind of just overlook? That you don't pay any attention for? That you don't have time to hang out with? Because you're too busy and you've got your life and you don't really care about those people anyway. So, so you know, what? who are those people? Because I would dare say every one of us in this room have those people. It's just, they're not worth our time. Why should I go out? It's too inconvenient. Why would I bother time with them? I don't even like them. Who are those people in your life? The ignored, the overlooked, the ones you try to avoid. And you say to yourself, you know, if I, if I invited them to church, they wouldn't be interested anyway. If I talk to them about the things of God, they wouldn't be interested. We say no for them before we even give them a chance to say no. We've made up our own mind. So why even bother? i got to tell you this story. Because our, our student ministries are, are learning the same stuff that we are here each Sunday morning. They're going through the same lessons. A little bit different, but you know, the same general principles. And a couple of weeks ago, remember we talked about Matthew and how he wanted so much to have his friends get in touch with the, the master that he was now following. He wanted to get the friends that he loved to come to find the Jesus that he was following. And he went out of his way to invite his friends to a party with Jesus. And Scott was teaching about that in the, in the student ministries class. And one of our sixth graders in that class, and one of the things Scott said was, he said, it is up to you to invite people. It is up to you to invite people to youth group. It's up to you to invite people on Sunday morning. It's up to you. And you know what Scott told him? He said, you know why? Because your parents are scared. So you're going to have to be the ones to do it because they're afraid. One of our sixth graders went home. And, and, and after a baseball game, and after practice and everything, he came home and he said, I want to invite one of my friends. 
to church on Sunday. And his parents said, well, you know, we, it's, we really don't have room in our car. And, you know, we try to get there early. And, and you know, it's just, you know, it, it, you know, it just really doesn't work out for you. And, and they could see on their on son, his, his, kind of, his countenance just kind of dropped. And he said, well, okay. And he went outside and he started shooting baskets out in the driveway. <laughs> and the parents started feeling like, wow, that's, that wasn't a good answer. And they went outside and said to their son, you know, um, we gave you the wrong answer. You know, uh, we, we probably shouldn't have said no. And, and sixth grader says to his parents, well, that's okay. Pastor Scott says that what you would do anyway. <laughs> yeah. And a little child shall lead them. <laughs> he said that night at the dinner table, we had a family meeting. We decided it is our job to fill our car with as many kids as we can. If we have to take two cars every Sunday morning, that's our job. And if you want to invite your friends, you do it. And you know what? I got to start inviting my friends. Who in your life do you not care enough about to tell them about Jesus? Who in your life is so avoidable that you don't care where they end up in eternity? Who is too inconvenient for you to spend time with? That is a hard question. It is the question I've been asking myself all this week. Who are the people that I don't care enough about to not even bother inviting, to already decide ahead of time, well, they're just going to say no anyway. Sometimes we need to go deliberately out of our way to go out of our comfort zone to reach people. Because we're talking about eternity, folks. Bill Hybels wrote a book a couple of years ago. It's called um, Just Walk Across the Room. And he tells countless stories over and over and over again about people who took the time to rock, walk across the room, to walk across a soccer field and talk to a soccer coach. To, to just story after story. And he says, you know, this is what he says. He says, assuming that the average distance across the room is 20 feet, about 10 steps, what if 10 steps could actually impact eternity? What if 10 steps, what if redirecting a person's forever really is as simple as walking across the room? What if it's just as simple as stepping out of my comfort zone? Do you know, we'll get to it in a minute, a whole village was transformed. A whole city was changed because Jesus went out of his way to talk to one woman at a well. One person. How do you know the one person that you are ignoring or avoiding or had nothing to do with or wouldn't possibly ever invite might be that one? How do you know? Jesus was compelled by his father's heart and he went out of his way. And the woman can't believe it. Her answer is, but you're a Jew. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. I know how, I know how you Jews feel about Samaritans and I'm a woman. I know where women fit in the whole scheme of things. And yet he said, she says, 
You ask me for a drink? How can you ask me for a drink? And then just a little parenthetical statement in case nobody understood this. For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. (laughs) Just in case you didn't know that. His love for people compelled him compelled him and wherever he went and whoever he met the other thing you find out about Jesus is he always treated people with dignity and respect he would go out of his way to meet people he would go out of his way to connect with people and when he connected with people he treated them with dignity and respect now listen if anybody had any reason to look down on people it's Jesus if anybody had any right to feel superior to everybody around him, it would be Jesus. But he doesn't. In fact, he often takes a place of humility. And he begins, notice how he begins the conversation. He begins the conversation out of his own need. He has been traveling. It is hot. It's the hottest part of the day. They're hungry. They are thirsty. They are tired. Jesus is even too tired to walk into town with his disciples to get the food. He stays at the well. And it's out of his own need that he starts this conversation. He says to the Samaritan woman that came to draw water, will you give me a drink? You know what? I think sometimes we try to project such an image that we have got it all together, that we are completely unapproachable. That people look at people in the church and they just seem to have such bright smiles on their faces and everything works out for them and you know, they never have any problems. I can't get up to that. Jesus relates to her out of a sense of need. And believe me, it was a real need. He really was thirsty. He wasn't just looking for an opening line like, hey, what's a beautiful girl like you doing in a place like this, you know? <laughs> He's thirsty. And he asks for a drink. And the reason he did it is because he loved people. Jesus loved people. He didn't look down on people. He didn't rate people. He didn't assess people. He didn't try to figure out where in the pecking order they fit so he knew where he fit with them. He wasn't constantly evaluating where I am in this relationship. He was so confident in who he was and what his mission was about. He could just love people the way that they were. And that's what he did. He just simply loved people people. I got, a couple of weeks ago, I, I came across this a pastor named Craig Ro- Groeschel. Um, he, just, he said, just so you understand how much God loves people, he put together a little list. And, and it just, he said, it's just the ABCs, okay? Just ABCs, people that God loves. Just so he said, we could do the whole 12, you know, all 20, 12, 20, uh, 24 letters in the alphabet. 24? 26? I, he used three. That's all that matters, okay? So, so let me just give you, just so you understand how many people, what kind of people God loves. Okay, just starting with the A's, because we have a hard time realizing this. God loves artists and astronauts and aerospace engineers. God loves accordion players. Yes, it's hard to believe, but God loves accordion players. He loves ankle biters, animal rights activists, airplane pilots, athletes, acrobats, and accountants. God loves accountants. And he loves people from Alabama, Alaska, Africa, Albania. He loves absent-minded people, awkward people, assertive people, authoritarian people, antisocial people, and even aggravating people. He loves the person sitting next to you. B. He loves babies and boys and bankers and band leaders. 
ballerinas and Bible readers, biology teachers, bird watchers, bus drivers, bookworms, bachelors, botanists, bowlers, baby boomers, boomerang throwers, beekeepers, BBC watchers, blondes, brunettes, and people with blue hair. He loves boars, the beat up, the burned out, the bosses, the braggers, the bag ladies, bartenders, brats, and people with braces, bushmen, and Baptists. (laughs) And not only does he love Baptists, see, he also loves Catholics and charismatics and congregationalists and congressmen, crooks and creeps and cheaters and country music fans. That's how big God's love is. He loves Cubans, Caucasians, Czechoslovakians, Californians, Cambodians, Cherokees, Comanches, Cajuns. He loves cooks, celebrities, cops, cheerleaders, clowns, cheapskates, comedians, and God even loves people who own cats. (laughs) And that's just the beginning of the list. You see, love is not something God does. It's who he is. He loves people. And the greatest expression of his love is his grace that he gives. This woman can't believe this Jewish man is talking to her. He says, how in the world would you be asking me for a drink? And he says to her, listen to this, if you knew the, what? If you knew the gift. If you knew the, if you own, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have, what's the word? Given you living water. If you only knew. Now, he hasn't explained what that all is yet, but he just says, if you only knew. If you only knew what gift is available to you, if you only knew, you would ask, and he would give you. Not sell you. Not trade you. Not barter you. Not make you earn it. He would give you living water. And she listens to this and she doesn't understand. But she's starting to clue in. He is talking about something different. He is talking about something different than just well water. Because you see, living water represented a spring. Because there's no rivers that run through Israel. There's only the Jordan River that runs on its border. There are no rivers. They are completely dependent on wells and wadis. Wadis are when the rain falls and it kind of collects and it catches in little low-lying areas. Those are wadis. That water is water, but it becomes very dry, very um, putrid, very um, because it doesn't move. It just kind of collects, and eventually it just evaporates. It's not dependable. But if you found a well that had a spring that was living water, and she's beginning to realize. She doesn't understand all of it, but she he's talking about something much more than just water from a well. She understands this guy's different. And, and the conversation gets a little close to home, and it gets a little intense, and it gets a little scary. You know, so, she, so she starts kind of talking theology, and she's, she starts asking him questions. You must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim? where our ancestors worship. She wants to talk theology. Now, is she just throwing up a smoke screen? Is she just trying to avoid the conversation? Or are these genuine questions? We don't know. What we do know is Jesus takes it seriously. He talks to her about the things 
She wants to talk. It might be her best attempt at God talk, but he takes her and he talks with her right there and right there. He takes her seriously. Now, I don't know about you, but every once in a while, we have a couple of guys, different guys, same outfit. Every once in a while, we have guys, two guys, they come knocking on our door in white sleeve shirts with ties. And every once in a while, they come knocking on our door. Although I think I'm kind of on their blacklist now because they don't come very often. But you know what I do? I look through the peephole. I I don't have time for this. Just walk away quietly. Because I don't have time for those people. And what good would it do anyway? Because they got their religion and I got my religion, you know. You know, and, and, and if I was really, really doing what I really am thinking, I would open the door and say, I got my own religion. I'm a pastor of a church. Thank you very much. I'm not interested. Boom. But I don't even have the guts to do that. I just look through the people and walk away. I don't take them seriously. Just, what message does that portray Because those are people. Who are the people we don't take seriously? Who are the people in our life that we don't treat with dignity and respect? See, Jesus always did that. And then, and then, when he spoke to people, when he did all this, he spoke to them about the real issues of life. He says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but the water I give him will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. There is something real here for you. There is something personal for you. There is something life-giving here for you. And she doesn't fully understand it. He hasn't fully explained it yet, but she knows as the conversation deepens, he's talking about something that I need, something down deep within He says it will be a spring of water that comes up from within you, not something you go draw from. It's going to be coming within you. It's going to be life-giving from within you, from the very depths of your being. You know what that is? The depths of your being? That's the place deep inside of you that feels dry and lonely in the dark of night. It's a place inside every person where the butterflies fly, where the worries And anxieties of life keep them awake at night. It's where the hopes and dreams and aspirations of every person lies deep within. It's the gut. And he's saying to her, this is what you're thirsty for. And she hears it and she says, well, well then... Please, sir, the woman says, give me this water and I'll never be thirsty again. She's, she's like, if that's what you're offering here, that's what I want. I want to give it to me because I want it. And then he does the unthinkable. He does the most insensitive thing you could possibly think of. He does something that just seems so cold and heartless. He says to her, go and get your husband. You know, because that's the, that's the hurt of her life. That's the part that keeps her coming to this well at noon instead of with everybody else. That's the part of her she doesn't want to talk about. 
That's the part that she wants to cover up. She doesn't like when other people talk about it. She doesn't want to talk about it with anybody else. That's why she doesn't come when everybody else is there at the well. It's the very thing that is keeping her dry. Life has left her dry. And she is dry trying to fill it with relationships. Because there's something missing in her life. And it has left her dry. And she says to Jesus, I have no husband. And it's just kind of like a, you know, let's not talk about that. And Jesus says to her, the fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. (laughs) I'll give you that. Why does he do that? I mean, you, you got her on the hook, Jesus. You're reeling her in. You know, don't you know how to close the deal? <laughs> Salesmanship 101. The customer is always right. You don't insult the customer. You're trying to close a deal here. Don't you know you just blew the sale? Jesus isn't interested in making a sale. He's interested in giving life. He's not interested in closing a deal. He's talking about somebody's life. And life, real life, is filled with hurts and disappointment and failures and mistakes and feelings of emptiness and loneliness. That's real life. And I think one of the things that Jesus is doing here, he is just trying to put a finger on her real thirst for her. What you're really thirsting for is a relationship. And we don't know. We don't know why she had five husbands. And, and, and in fact, in those days, women really didn't have much choice in the whole deal. It, it was a man that did the divorce. Maybe, maybe they died. Maybe she couldn't bear children, so they just wrote her off. We, we don't know. We don't have no idea. All we know is she's gone from relationship to relationship to marriage to marriage to marriage and thinking, maybe this one will be the one. Maybe this one will work out. Maybe this. Five marriages is not even common in our society much less than hers. And she's finally to the point where she's just like giving up on marriage. I don't even want to make that commitment because it doesn't mean anything anymore. So I'm just going to live with the guy. Why is he pointing that out? That just seems so heartless and cruel. He's saying, you know, life has left you thirsty. And you have tried to fill it mostly with relationships. Let me ask you this morning. What are you trying to fill your life with? You know, because I do a lot of reading about sailing stories and shipwreck stories and that kind of stuff, you cannot drink salt water. You can be in a raft surrounded by salt water, but the more that you drink, the thirstier you get. And you die from dehydration in the middle of an ocean of water. And Jesus is saying, you are trying to fill that insatiable thirst in your life and you've been trying to do it with relationships and it still isn't working for you. What, are you. what is it that you are trying to fill your life with? What is it that you're trying to quench your thirst with? And you know it doesn't quench it. It just leaves you thirstier. It might be relationships. It might be your career. It might be that next job. Well, the next job, when I get to that level, then when I make this much money, then I'll be quenched. No, when I get that home, that's my dream home. When I get my dream home, then I'll be quenched. When I get my car, when I get that other car, when I get... What are the things that you fill your life with that you think are fulfilling a thirst and only a few months later, you're thirsty again? 
And that's what Jesus is doing. He's putting his finger on her real thirst. And notice, by the way, because this is really, really important. He does not talk to her about her problems until she has already said, give me this water. He doesn't start the conversation saying, hey, you, you with the five husbands that you don't have anymore. You who so screwed up your life that you got no friends left in this world. You who have been so miserably miserably bad at being a wife that you can't even keep a husband. That's not where he starts. He doesn't even bring that up until the point where she says, give me this water. But he does bring it up because he wants her to know this is where your real thirst is. And I think there's a couple other reasons. I think he wants her to know, I know the real you. Not the pretend you. Not the you that strangers see that have no idea what's really going on in your life. I know the real you. And it's the real you that I'm offering life to. Because you see, I think if he had not done this, and she had thought that this relationship now that she got with God through this man named Jesus, if she thought it was all based on his, her good impressions on him, because he didn't know her past, then she would have lived the rest of her life trying to live up to that standard. She would live the rest of her life trying to perform and pretend something that she was not. And, and Jesus just says, I know who you are. I know who you really are. And it's who you really are that I'm offering life. And I think the other thing is that he was so confident in the power of the Holy Spirit to transform a life that he could say, I know your past and it doesn't really matter because what I really care about is your future. I think the point of the story is there are people in your life that you avoid, that you ignore, that you don't give the time of day to who are thirsty. Who are thirsty. If only someone would tell them where they could get the drink. What's really interesting What's really interesting in the story is because the story goes on. She goes back into the village and she goes to his village and, she, and it says that she went in there and here's what she said. In fact, it says many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I did. Now, what kind of witness is that? Because the whole town knows everything she's done. <laughs> but her point of greatest weakness and failure And greatest thirst is the very thing that becomes her story. And sometimes we try to cover up our past and we don't want to talk about the bad stuff and those times that we regret and the things that we did when those are the very things that are so deeply a part of our story that they can be life-changing. So let me ask you this morning as we close, just very, very simply, where has life left you thirsty? Where has life left you thirsty? The things that you are trying to fill it with, but they are not fulfilling. And you keep thinking, well, if I just get one more of those, or just get a couple, if I just advance a little bit, and you get there, and and you're not satisfied. Where has life left you thirsty? You keep thinking it's the next relationship, the next deal, the next investment, the next job, the next home, the next car, whatever it might be. You're still thirsty. Jesus came to quench the deepest thirst in your life. And and by the way, if you have found that, 
How in the world can you possibly keep that to yourself? What is it that you are afraid of? That people might think you're spiritual? That people might think you're a fanatic? If you are not a fanatic for God, you missed the point. (laughs) Because it is about life in Jesus. And it is what the world is thirsting for. And I have found it. And there are people that I don't bother telling about it. How stinking selfish is that? Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. 